BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's the Bill Press Pod, and it's Friday, March 11. Time for this week's Reporters Roundtable. For the third week in a row, the war in Ukraine dominates the news, with Russia more and more targeting civilians, which many people have called a war crime, which it is. The war also impacting things here in the United States. Congress spending more money and sending more money to Ukraine, as well as military hardware, and people, Americans, paying more at the pump. Meanwhile, Republicans are still trying to decide whether they follow Donald Trump in praising Vladimir Putin or follow their own gut in condemning him. And here's something new. Congress actually passed a bill this week, a big bill, one and a half trillion dollars, with another 13 billion for Ukraine and more money for the military and more money for social programs, but strangely, no more money for fighting COVID. While Washington sleeps, state legislatures are working all night passing legislation on what can no longer be taught in schools, according to some parents. Nothing about race, nothing about slavery, nothing about sex, and no books with four-letter words, or in Florida, no books with the three-letter word gay. And maybe most importantly of all, baseball is back. Opening day now set for April 7th. Joining us today to make some sense of it all, our all-star, all-women panel in honor of International Women's Day on March 8th. Melanie Mason joining us, national political correspondent from the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Melanie. Hi, thanks for having me. Jennifer Bendry, senior political reporter for HuffPost. Hello, Jen. Welcome back. Hi, Bill. And Pema Levy, political reporter for Mother Jones. Hello, Pema. Hi, Bill. And those are the voices of a choir singing in a church in Ukraine in the middle of the fighting. But of course, the Ukrainian people not just praying, not just singing their songs or their their hymns, but uh, taking up arms, making Molotov cocktails, and actually fighting in the streets to save their country. Jen Bendry, is this the war in Ukraine now the one issue that we found that to unite Republicans and Democrats? Um, it does seem to be having that effect to an extent. Um, it's not very cool right now to say that you side with Putin over <laughs> Zelensky, but the reality is that uh, so many of the Republicans right now previously uh, did that because under President Trump, um, they aligned themselves with him and they they agreed with denying weapons to Zelensky um, because Trump was trying to to threaten him into giving him intel on Hunter Biden. So, you know, Republicans, we cannot forget that Republicans went right along with that whole um, pretty outrageous uh, 
situation where where we were threatening another uh, world leader, uh, the leader of mm-hmm. a country over a political reason and withholding money and, and support for them. So it's true that right now that it, it it does appear that just about everybody in Congress is actually united and in, in standing up uh, to Putin. But but he, it, it was just a, a couple of years ago, just a few years ago when Republicans were not doing this. And it, every time I see one of them um, pledging their support with Ukraine, I cannot help but think of what they did just a few years ago. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that in just a minute with some Republicans uh, who still are not quite uh, on board. But Pema, in the, Pema, in the meantime, um, Republicans and some Democrats keep pressuring uh, President Biden to do more and more and more. I mean, we started with a very tough sanctions that was followed by sanctions personally on um, President Putin himself. Uh, and then we banned the import of Russian oil. Today, the president's going to announce that Russia no longer will enjoy favorite trade status. Um uh, so how far does this go? No fly zone, troops on the ground. How how far are we willing to go? Yeah, I think we've, you know, I'm I'm not an expert on on trade relations or, you know, what, you know, other sort of non um non-military uh responses mm-hmm. we can use. Um I think if there are other ones on the table, uh it does seem like there is a political will to use them at this time. Um but you know a no-fly zone is um you know and and Biden is well aware of this um can very quickly lead to troops on the ground, can very quickly lead to uh being at war with another country, right? Because a no-fly zone means you're <laughs> you're shooting down planes. Uh and and that that can become, um, you know, we're at war very fast. And and I think Biden has been very clear over and over, um, we are not going to war with Russia. And I think, you know, there's obviously enthusiasm to help Ukraine. But I think that ultimately, you know, apart from the human cost and all of the other costs of going to war with Russia, which could be enormous and even nuclear, um, there's actually very little appetite for American troops on the ground. I mean, we just got out of Afghanistan. And obviously, that right. was a debacle. Uh, I do not think there's a lot of appetite uh, for, uh, you know, marching into Europe right now. Certainly not among the American people. So Melanie, the 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 most uh, significant maybe manifestation of the war in Ukraine is the perennial issue starting in California and then sweeping across the country. And that's the price of gas. <laughs> Every story st- It features how high the price of gas is in Los Angeles. That's where you are, Melanie. How bad is it? And how much can the American people tolerate? It's significant. I mean, California, we're always used to having higher gas prices than the rest of the country. And part of that is because some of the aggressive uh, climate policies that we have. But uh, Mm -hmm. when you're pushing $6 uh, a gallon, um, that is going to get people's attention. And it does seem to me that that's... Have you you seen that? $6? Yes, I have seen that. And not just in the... There's a couple of gas stations that, you know, the news stations always go to for sort of price gouging um, examples. Uh And I would say that this is wider spread now. It's not just the bad actors that everybody knows to avoid. Uh, so it is, I mean, I was able to find it for five fifty nine, but that was, that took some uh-huh. searching. So I, I think that obviously perhaps it's not quite that extreme in the rest of the country, but it does feel like this is the week where, um, where I, I, it, the rubber hits the road in the sense, no pun intended, in the sense of American people are actually going to be feeling now consequences of this war. And I think that there has been um, so much support in public polling and we've seen on, on social media and others for the Ukrainian people and, um, 
uh, and certainly uh, President Zelensky. But I think a lot of that was because we were able to sort of watch it from the comfort of our homes and not necessarily have any direct consequences. And that's starting to change. And so one of the things that I'll be looking for in the coming weeks is, do we start seeing a shift in the polling, a shift in the support once it's not just sort of a hypothetical support for the democratic ideals, but Mm -hmm. actually something that is impacting people's bottom line. Right. Because we know that uh, the Constitution says very clearly that Americans should never pay more than $2 a gallon for gas, right? I, mean, that's... <laughs> uh, I cannot recall $2 a gallon in, a, in, in Los Angeles uh, sort of, ever. That's sort of built into us. All right, Jen, I want to come back to uh, some of the Republicans who can't quite shake Hunter Biden, uh, can't quite shake that narrative of Donald Trump a couple of years ago. And we heard it this week from freshman Congressman Madison Cawthorn, speaking to a group of reporters in Asheville, North Carolina. Here he is. Remember that Zelensky is a bomb. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and is incredibly evil and has been pushing woke ideologies. So Zelensky's a thug. The government of Ukraine is incredibly corrupt and incredibly evil. Um, does he represent any particularly big slice of the Republican Party? Um, I haven't seen a single Republican rushing to back him up, so I'm going to say no. (laughs) That is pretty out of step with literally everybody. Um, I mean, he, if anything, I would interpret that as his undying love of Donald Trump and just doing anything he can to associate himself with Trump, who, um, you know, is a cult of personality. I mean, people still love Trump, even though Trump himself has... Uh, you know, more recently sort of softened his tone from saying that, um, you know, Putin was a, what did he say? Like a savvy genius or something. Yeah. Right. uh, And now he's sort of walking it back a little, but I mean, Madison Cawthorn is just sort of a hot mess all the time and, and just saying crazy things and, and out there on a limb because he is, you know, like all members of Congress is up for reelection. And I think his whole persona is that he is, is a fringy right wing, um, you know, Trump loving guy. And so as extreme as he can get is kind of his jam. And, mm-hmm. um, and don't forget that his tweets, um, you know, Madison Cawthorn, uh, some of the stuff he was saying came up right around the same time he was charged for driving with a revoked license for the second <laughs> right. time right. since 2017. That means he now has three court dates scheduled, one for his license and two for separate speeding uh, citation. So this guy is like, it's like he just keeps throwing out um mm-hmm. crazy things and ignoring the law and and that's and that's going to get him reelected I, that's his plan i guess yeah you mentioned the social media i mean that particularly pema is where the narrative uh about um russia and putin uh it, it continues and a lot of it is um from trumpers or trump related here here's a comment for example to show how deep this goes um, we've had this convoy of trucks uh, going around the Beltway making, I don't know, whatever point they're trying to make. Uh, and one of the truckers was interviewed on the local news this week about the war in Ukraine. Uh, here he is, just a comment, I think, showing <clears throat> how deep this big lie goes. The deep state has always made Putin to look like the bad guy. Um, but he's a good guy. He's taken out all the, um, the bio labs, child trafficking areas, um, adrenochrome harvesting areas. So, Pema, where is that coming from, right? Direct from Fox News? 
I mean, I, I think what's so interesting about these narratives, I mean, because, you know, we played the, the clip from, from Cawthorn, is that it sounds exactly like Russian propaganda, right? I mean, this is what Putin yeah. and the Russian state is, you know, jamming down the throats of their own people, which is, you know, that Ukraine is run by Nazis, right? And, and thugs and they're evil and we have to go, you know, liberate them. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> social media, um, you know, obviously provides a very easy way to, um, you know, bridge those gaps and communicate. And and I think we've seen that, you know, throughout the, the Trump era, um, you know, the the way in which some, um, you know, not all, obviously, but but some of the conservative media ecosystem has, you know, you see that the the train of information, right, from like RT or something, and then it ends mm-hmm. up on Gab, and then, you know, pretty right. soon it's on Reddit, and then it's on Fox News um, in some form. And, you know, the other thing is that that almost requires a conspiratorial kind of level of thinking is because to what Jen had said earlier, the Republicans have just had an incredible amount of whiplash when it comes to Russia over the last several years. I mean, a few years ago, Mitt Romney was running for president saying that Russia was our number one geopolitical foe. And then people made fun of him for it. And now you could debate if maybe he was being pretty prescient at that point. Um, but everyone was saying, no, no, you know, Russia's, Russia's bad. See, Romney was right. And then Trump comes along and he praises Putin and gets help from Putin uh, and won't condemn Putin. And then all of a sudden, even though Putin has um, helped Donald Trump win the election, and so all of a sudden there's this scrambling to get on Russia's side, well, now (laughs) the entire world is uh, opposed to Russia. And now there's kind of a lot of them are scrambling back to the other side. But it's it's an incredibly confusing place for people to be if you want to be loyal to Donald Trump and follow public opinion. And it it totally makes sense to me um, that that just hewing to the facts is is not the way to <laughs> to to deal with this. Um, and you know, the one other thing I would say to the, the point of of Republicans here, I think my favorite fact about the Madison Cawthorn story was that I I'm pretty sure it actually broke into the news because it was reported by Carl Rove, who was calling yes. him out. Yes. So you yes. can really see the tension there, right, between <laughs> Catherine saying, "This is how I want to get elected," and Rove being like this is not our brand, you know, whatever Rove is up to this election cycle, he, he doesn't want to be on the side of Putin. Right. Uh, Karl Rove called Cawthorn out in the Wall Street Journal, right? <laughs> so that all of right. this makes all of this makes your head spin. So then the question is, what does Donald Trump think about the war in Ukraine? Uh, Melanie, maybe you can help us explain this. So Donald Trump, he, he did a podcast this week and he was asked that question, what do you think is going to be the outcome of the war in Ukraine? This is not edited. This is exactly Donald Trump, how he responded to that question. What's going to be the outcome of the war in Ukraine? Here he is. We are uh, playing right into their hands, the green energy, the windmills. They don't work. They're too expensive. They kill all the birds. They ruin your landscapes. And yet the environmentalists love the windmills. And I've been preaching this for years the windmills, and I had them way down, but the windmills are the most expensive energy you can have, uh, and they don't work. And by the way, they last a period of 10 years, and by the time they start rusting and rotting all over the place, nobody ever takes them down. They just go onto the next piece of prairie or land and destroy that. It's incredible that they want, but other forms of uh, green energy. Uh, so, Melody, did he not hear the question, or... <laughs> I think that you can 
generously sort of see where the train of thought would go if you're filling in the blanks, right? There is an argument, which is that because of this involvement that there is, we are now cutting off supplies to Russian oil. And I think that there is a sense, particularly among conservatives, that environmentalists are going to take advantage of this moment to try and remake our energy um, sort of mix. That is, of course, not what he articulated. He just jumped straight to the uh, to the windmills. And it's, look, I mean, it, it, give President Trump credit for this. He's been very consistent on windmills. You know, yes. he's been less oh, yeah. consistent on yeah. Putin, yeah. but he's been very consistent on windmills. So I do think that he kind of then locked into a more comfortable gear. Uh, but I, I think more broadly, this also just reflects, I think, the reflexive contrarianism of, of the Republican Party right now, whether it is uh, Trump or the more establishment Republicans. Um, and I know that a lot of the congressional Republicans have not sided with Putin, have made their alliances much more with, with Ukraine. Uh, but even still, there is this reflexive kind of contrarian. They have to find something to criticize about this. And so then it's criticizing President Biden for both not being tough enough on sanctions and they need to go after the oil. But as soon as you go after the oil, you're going to, you know, gas prices are going to raise. And so that's, that's Biden's fault too. And I guess that's sort of the benefit of not being in the majority is you just get to find <laughs> something wrong with whatever the policies are. But that's certainly sort of the one consistency is reflexive contrarianism uh, across the board. Uh, and we also know, of course, in Donald Trump's thinking that windmills are no good because sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Uh, just like solar panels are not good because sometimes the sun goes down. So there you go. Uh, let's come back. Jen, Congress, the Senate yesterday followed the House, right, one day later and passed a bill, $1.5 trillion. This was kind of a rare event in Washington these days, right? It was. It took some a lot of... Uh like not back room, but just like a lot of scrambling at the last minute to get everything yeah. into this bill that could get support. And it, you know, the bill finally dropped at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it was Tuesday. I don't even, the days are blurring together, but um, yes, this was a big deal. They passed a $1.5 trillion spending bill that um, keeps the federal government open and which, Hey, is their number one, if they have one job in Congress, it's to keep the government open. So they did it. Congratulations, guys. Uh, and they also, but I think it's through September. So and that's a bi- and a bipartisan vote. I mean, a big bipartisan. Yeah. Vote. Well, the reason it was a big bipartisan vote is because a, it's you know keeping the government open for several months, but b, it provides thirteen point six billion dollars in aid for Ukraine mm-hmm. and for other Eastern European countries. So those are, I mean, Ukraine is like a very um, urgent issue right now and, and people want to do something about it. So they stuffed those things in there together. Um, and one thing that fell out of this bill at the very last minute was $15 billion to, to, for the, the COVID response basically. And at the very last second, when it looked like the bill was just going to go through, they had to stop in the house and pull out that $15 billion for, for COVID response because, uh, some Republicans uh, opposed it and wanted offsets. And then Democrats said, we can't offset that because that's going to come from money from our states. And um, so let's just go ahead and take it out. So they're going to have to figure that out separately later. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a huge deal. It sailed through the House. It went through the Senate and it's headed to, to Biden now. Um, they're going to prevent a, another partial government shutdown. So again, congratulations, Congress. You've done your most basic job. And beyond that, um, a thing that doesn't get a ton of attention about what was in that bill since it's so big, but that it deserves attention is that the Violence Against Women Act was stuffed in there too. And Congress finally reauthorized that, which it's taken them years to do, which is also ridiculous because 
it's the bill, the law is called the Violence Against Women Act. And they can't, they haven't, it's been, its authorization lapsed three years ago, which means this programs covered by the Violence Against Women Act haven't been authorized and haven't gotten new funding. Well, actually they've gotten new funding, but they just can't, uh, they've had sustained funding, but they can't expand and they can't mm-hmm. guarantee the security of the funding. So that got stuffed in there too. That's a huge deal. So, um, Yes, this is all headed to Biden now. Congratulations, Congress! Like you did basically the bare minimum, <laughs> um, and you actually and you you stuffed another bill in there, the Violence Against Women Act that you should have addressed years ago. But it's still give them a victory when they get it. This was a big deal and, and a good thing by Congress this week. So, what's your take, Pema? First of all, it was twenty seven hundred pages, I believe. So you can understand why it'll take us some time to figure out, Jen. Uh, and 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 Pema and Melanie, everything that's in there, right? Uh, but Pema, what what's the thinking on the part of Republicans saying we'll go along with everything, but no more money for COVID? I mean, we're really not out of the woods yet. Yeah, the COVID part is so puzzling, and it, my understanding is, is it was not just Republicans that there were there were Democrats that this was um, also a, a problem with the, in the Democratic caucus. Although Jen, tell me if, if I'm wrong about that. That's I'm not a congressional correspondent, but that is my understanding. Um, it just feels short-sighted to me, right? I mean, we're coming down off of a wave and mask mandates are lifting and that's, and you know, the sun is coming out, it's almost spring Mm -hmm. and, and that's awesome. And maybe this is just the end, right? But like the smart money is that there will be another variant. (laughs) There will be another wave. We're going to need more vaccines. Uh, we're going to need more, more boosters, maybe a, a, you know, a tweaked vaccine. We're going to need the, um, retroviral, uh, medications to treat cases. Uh, we're going to need enormous testing capacity uh, in the future. And, you know, kicking that can down the road after two years of knowing what it's like to live through a pandemic and not be prepared um, is is not something that I I do not understand that that line of Emma, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but I just would like yeah. to say that that is way too reasonable and forward thinking for, <laughs> for Congress. Like, I don't know what this is that you speak of, but everything you said, which makes 100 percent sense, is not something that they would do. <laughs> You're giving them too much credit, I guess. Right. Uh, Melanie, one thing and, and uh, Jen and Pema, you can weigh in here, too. But Melanie, um, it's pretty obvious that. Build back better. Nobody talks about anymore. Um, what what you read? Is it dead or is it just back in smaller pieces under a different name? Well, I'll, I mean, I'll defer to the reporters, you know, in DC who are probably more up to date on the um, the minute to minute negotiations. But I will say, from all the way out here, uh, certainly seems dead. It seems like a lot of the reporting that I've seen looks says that you know Democrats are talking more about executive orders that the president can do to try and enact parts of this agenda. Uh, It sounds like the tone um, out of the House Democratic uh, retreat this weekend or this week has been not the most optimistic when it comes to build back better. Um, And and just to get back to uh, the government shutdown for a second, I do want to note that uh, all the way out here in California, the fact that it made not even a ripple that there was a potential that the government was going to shut down just speaks to how much (laughs) Congress has been playing chicken with this for years now. I mean, when I was a state house reporter and there was threats of a government shutdown, we would be scrambling to try and identify all the different mm. ways that California would be affected. 
And I think that now it was kind of like, oh, here, here we go again, and I'll figure something out at the last minute. It really goes to show, I think, how numb we've all become to the fact that just doing the bare minimum um, sometimes is a problem for this Congress. Right. Uh, and it always does seem to get down to the very last minute, as you point out. And then somehow they work something out, even if it's only to keep the government running for another 24 hours. <laughs> and then they come back and tackle it again. Uh, we got uh, There's some other news in the week uh, of, the, of the week that we didn't even get to yet. Uh, let's pick up um, on those items after we take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Then we'll be back with our panel, Melanie Mason from the LA Times, Pema Levy from Mother Jones, and Jen Bendery from HuffPost. And today's edition of the Bill Press Pod and today's political roundtable, uh, pol- pol- reporters roundtable, brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, good men and women of the UFCW. Uh, under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. Uh, They're the ones who uh, provide such great service at our big retail chain stores uh, like Macy's uh, and Nordstrom's and all the rest. Our big grocery chains, um, Safeway, Lucky's, you name it. The meat and poultry processing plant service is their key, uh, and they do that year in and year out every day of the year uh, for all of us across the country for which we are most grateful. We salute the members of the UFCW and thank them particularly for their support of the Bill Press Pod. This show is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. It's a group of over 100 podcasts that have pledged to spread the word about the state of American democracy. We're partnering with the nonpartisan group Represent Us to promote efforts to protect the freedom to vote and to pass laws that'll make our government truly inclusive. America's democracy faces urgent threats, but there are ways we can build a fairer path forward together. Visit represent.us slash podcast to learn more. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back on today's Reporters Roundtable with Pema Levy from Mother Jones, Jennifer Bendry from the HuffPost, and Melanie Mason from the Los Angeles Times. Um, The January 6th committee, still at it, hearing from former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn this week, who took the fifth uh, repeatedly in front of the committee. Um, and this is a committee that said just last week they believe the president, former president, and his allies engaged in a, quote, criminal conspiracy to prevent Congress from doing its job. Uh, Jim Bendry, what's your take on this committee? Is it getting close to issuing a report, to holding public hearings, or close to filing criminal charges against the former president? Well, the committee leaders have already said that they're they're, they want to have some of their proceedings public this year. And you can say it's because it's an election year and they want this to be, you know, visible to everybody out there at, leading up to the November elections. And it's a little 
um, helpful to Democrats' case. But I mean, personally, I do think they should make this stuff public. It's it's egregious what happened, and as the more time that goes by, I think people. And if you're not living in D.C. and were personally affected by what happened on January 6th, you're you're kind of moving on. So um, I do think they're going to start making some of these hearings public. Um, and the big question is, you know, are they going to go after Trump? Mm-hmm. Are they just going to go, you know, slowly c- continue interviewing other people connected to Trump? Um, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to go after Trump. I mean, they, it's a very difficult case for them to make, um, you know, to to prove that he um, to prosecute him for a potential criminal crime over this. And there's a lot of attention on, on attorney general Merrick Garland right now and what he's going to do with this. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the committee is no joke. Like th- this is not for show what they're doing. Um, they are basically going and, and Merrick Garland has laid this out himself. You know, the goal here is for people to, you, you, you start with the, the most obvious, um, uh, people who have done something wrong and you go for them and then you build out a web and you go up, up, up. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So, so they've been, they've done a ton of work in the January 6th committee that we, we just don't see. There's like thousands of hours of interviews and extraordinary resources and et cetera. So I think, I think there could be some bombshells this year from that, that committee. And I don't know that it's going to end in some kind of criminal um, charges against Donald Trump, but I think that what they're doing is very real. They're issuing subpoenas. There's already started, um, you know, a couple people have gone to jail already connected to January 6th. So there's real momentum here. The question is, how high is this going to go? And especially before November, not to make everything about politics, but this is certainly going to affect the November elections if if something happens that's a bombshell in this committee. Right. Well, Melanie, uh, this doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it would seem really maybe, I don't know, unacceptable or wrong were were the committee or the or the Department of Justice to just focus on the foot soldiers and not follow it up the ladder to the person who inspired and incited the insurrection. Well, and there's certainly indications that, that that's something that the committee is at least considering because we saw uh, in a brief last week in the uh, efforts by former Trump attorney uh, John Eastman to block his emails from being turned over to the committee, um, that they laid out an argument that hinted or maybe more explicitly said that that they believe that uh, that Trump may have engaged in uh, criminal or fraudulent behavior and therefore these emails should not be uh, subject to attorney-client privilege because of the crime fraud exception. Uh, it was very interesting. I watched that hearing uh, with uh, with John Eastman this mm-hmm. week and uh ended up with the the judge ordering that he is going to review some of these contested documents to see if they are indeed uh, privileged. The judge in his order did not touch on this argument that the House is making uh, with regards to this crime fraud exception, but we're expecting a much longer decision to come down once he actually says, you know, whether emails will indeed be handed over to the committee or not. And I think that might be our first clue as to sort of how how much the legal world is seeing validity and the argument that uh, the House is mounting. Of course, they haven't you know, presented a full case, but they have certainly pointed to certain things that the president has said or certain things that have been in already released uh, communications that are, you start to see a case trying to build about the sense that the president may have defrauded the people of the United States. And so I do think that that is absolutely a thread that uh, is worth continuing to watch. And that does at least hint at the idea that they are trying to go after the big fish in this operation. And and uh, Pema, back in on January five, in a speech at the Justice Department, the Attorney General Merrick Garland said, 
I'm paraphrasing, but we will follow the facts and follow the truth wherever it leads, no matter how high it leads. Sort of an indication, right, that uh, that they could go after Trump. Yeah, I mean, right. That hasn't been ruled out. And, and, you know, federal prosecutors are not supposed to, you know, announce their criminal investigations, right, before charges are made. We've, you know, seen that rule broken and, 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 you know, with a lot of political fallout in the last few years, um, you know, you really, you know, there's, um, you know, I think if anything, Merrick Garland is, is a by the books kind of guy. Right. Um, and, and when you go by the books, you don't, you don't announce these things ahead of time. So then obviously that leaves us and lots of other people to sort of try to read the tea leaves and look through the documents and, and, you know, try to, you know, make interpretations and, and guesses, um, as to what is going to happen. And and yeah, we, we just don't know. But I think I do think that the January 6th committee and the work that they're doing um, will have a big role in that um, because, you know, they are basically what is keeping this in the news, right? I mean, and they've done, you know, their press strategy of, you know, kind of drip, 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 um, you know, every few days it has been really effective, I think, in, in keeping things in the news and, and keeping um, this topic going. And and I think that, you know, to Jen's point too, like at some point I do hope there are public hearings because, because yeah. this is something that you can't, you know, not everyone reads the New York Times, right? Not everyone follows the drip drip. And, and it is important because, you know, the former president attempted to stay in power by having his followers violently, um, you know, invade the Capitol. And, and there's, you know, an entire political party minus, you know, two of its members who won't even participate in investigating this. Uh, And, you know, when you think of an election coming up, you, you, if you're Democrats, I assume, want to, you know, remind the American people what the two parties view of January 6th is. Yeah, and I think the chairman has said, as Jen pointed out, that there will they do want to hold public hearings. I've yeah. seen April and I've seen May, so I think we can uh, see that uh, in, as soon as they finish their first, and they're almost there, finish their first round of interviews. Uh, this, so a couple of you have mentioned we are in the midterm year. This is 2022. We're in the midst of uh, politics. Uh, one primary has already been held in Texas. Uh, and both parties are looking for their message I'd like to get your, each of you your take, not that I think any of us uh, cover these issues on a day-to-day basis, but um, Democrats seem to think their message is going to be, look at all we've got done under President Biden, look at the economy, look at COVID, boom, boom, boom. While the Republicans seem to be gathering around this message in more and more states of, we're the ones who are going to protect parents and kids from teachers who are going to teach bad things to our kids in schools. It started in Virginia uh, where Glenn Youngkin, one of his big issues was we're going to get Tony Morrison's beloved out of schools, but it, it, it's it's wide ranging. It's um, the laws passed in Florida, laws passed now in I think pending in Georgia that teachers can't teach about slavery. They can't teach about they can't make white kids uncomfortable by telling them about slavery. They can't uh, make all kids uncomfortable by talking about sexual orientation or about trans trends or gay or uh, books that should be banned mouse should not be should not be taught beloved should not be taught huck finn should not be taught how serious is this and um how effective is it jen you want to start us off sure 
I mean, to me, this is what Republicans do. This has been happening for decades that when in doubt, start a culture war right ahead of an election. <laughs> this is what they do. I mean, I remember this. Remember mm. back during Bush, like they did this with with gay with uh, the constitutional bans on on um, was it on gay marriage by state? Like they were they went straight for, yes. for yes. gay people, like yep. for the whole campaign cycle. Um and they, they do this all the time. I mean, this is not that surprising to me. This is like their go-to hmm. um, message when there's an election. They don't have anything to go for, and then they're not in power. They, they just attack. And so I think this is the typical culture war playbook approach that Republicans tend to take when there's an election year. Um, and I think that if you if you follow some of the, the more um, political messagey members of Congress who are in leadership, like Elise Stefanik, who's the House Republican conference mm-hmm. chair. Um, I look at her tweets a lot because she sort of signals to me what their messaging is. And mm-hmm. you're going to see a lot of words just like chaos and, um, you know, like never, like words like never, always, Biden fails, like just like these buzzwords. Um, but the the theme seems to be, you know, let parents decide what's best for their children. Exactly. No force no more forced masks, you know, don't teach them about white people being bad in American history. Don't, don't let them know that it's okay to not be straight and white. You know, it's, it's like very basic, you know, appealing to the lowest common denominator kind of thing and throw in the mix of the, um, the culture war, um, attacks, um, get ready for them to blame Biden for the, for gas prices going up and inflation. Like they're all over that right now too. Um, and so, you know, and they're going to have to figure out how to message around that while they're also supporting a ban on Russian oil. And it appears they're going to continue to say, I am very proud to to support, you know, a, a ban on Russian oil. Like we are firmly standing with um, with Ukraine. But then they're also in the same breath going to say our gas prices are going up and this is all Biden's fault. They're going to they're gonna do this. And I don't know how they connect the dots. And I guess it seems to me if past is president, they don't care. They're yeah. just going to say things that don't match. So on the culture wars, Melanie, uh, we know it plays in Alabama and uh, Mississippi, and we know it plays in Texas uh, and Georgia. Does it play on the West Coast? I think that, look, I don't think that banning books um, or banning talking about acknowledging that there are uh, families with with gay parents or there are trans kids, That I don't think that that would pull very well out here. But I do think that one of the reasons why Republicans keep returning to this playbook, especially when Democrats are in power, is because the one vulnerability I think that Democrats really do have right now is a sense among voters that Democrats are not focusing on the things that they care about and things that they're caring about is the economy, inflation, uh, public safety. And the more that they can sort of draw Democrats into responding to these culture war provocations, the more that they are able to feed into voters' sense of the Democrats are not talking about the issues that I care about the most. So while I think that a lot of voters may be quite frankly, turned off by a lot of the very extreme culture war uh, lobbying that we might be seeing from from Republicans. I think that there that if there is any sort of sense of Democrats having to be shaken off of their message to then have to respond to these attacks, um, I think that that could help Republicans because even the more moderate voters um, who, who don't love the idea of banning books would like to hear their politicians talking more about how they're going to deal with rising prices. So you can both sort of, it, it, the strategy mm-hmm. makes sense because you appeal to your, your red meat base, but also perhaps to your moderate voters who just would like to have the conversation be about economic issues. Right. And, and Pema, this whole thing about what teachers can say and what they can't say 
to me, it always raises a question, uh, not that they care, but how do you possibly enforce this? What do you have, uh, a cop in every classroom? Or how do I you mean, read it? Yeah, so that's, I think, what is um, kind of scary about these laws is they have all sorts of, you know, it depends on on the, the bill. There's lots of different enforcement mechanisms, right? Like we want cameras in the classroom. We're going to take away our teaching license. We're going to defund the school. We're going to, you know, discipline you in another way. We're going to, you're going to have to pay a bunch of money. There's all of these like, you know, enforcement mechanisms, right? But I think the idea is that you can't actually enforce it. You just, but you don't have to because everyone is so afraid of these consequences that they just self-censor, right? And mm. so it chills speech. So on the one hand, you have the politics, right? The culture war, um, as Ben, as Jen said. Um, but then on the other hand, it, it just sort of self-enforces. And if you um, are someone who actually is uncomfortable with, um, you know, implicit bias training or talking about how slavery was bad, uh, you know, basic things like this, um, then you know, this is a great bonus that you're not going to see those things in uh, schools and in classrooms as much because people are just going to be afraid to do it and they're going to self-censor. And I think that, you know, that's what's um, scary about this is is that there's, it's uh, it's chilling um, and it, it changes people to, yeah. people's behavior, um, it, you know, and it kind of creates this um, sort of like uh, sense of surveillance, right. Of being watched that any, you know, any, these are citizen enforced bills, a lot right. of them. Right. So, you know, anyone, um, literally anyone, not even a parent, um, can accuse you of something and, and then you have to go defend yourself. And, mm. um, and it's a, it's a kind of anti-democratic, um, you know, scary place, place to be. Right. With a small D and very, very chilling and very scary indeed. Um, I'm sure there are other things we didn't get to yet, but in the interest of time, we have to move on and wrap up here. But a great conversation, uh, a great rundown of the news of the week. Thanks to Melanie Mason and Jen Bendry and Pema Levy. So uh, before we let you go, uh, there must have been one story this week that uh, just prompted you to stop in your tracks and say, well, how about that? Made me laugh, made me cry, made me angry or whatever. We call it our favorite story of the week. Um, Pema Levy, how about we start us off? Okay, so uh, just a quick ex- a background here. Uh, um, okay. <laughs> the article I am I am going to mention, you don't have to go read it. I'm going to give you everything you need. Um, it's from Axios. And I'm just going to say right now, Axios has great reporters. It is not personally how I would cover politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of, uh, kind of, you know, it reduces really complex things to bullet points and catchy headlines and sensationalizes things. And I, I don't love that. But uh, there's an Axios story that I think their format perfectly fits. And so I do appreciate this news. It is giant spiders expected to drop from the sky across the East Coast this spring. What? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> they are crazy looking. They are black and yellow. They are striped. And Axios breaks it down exactly like I need it to. And, you know, like, again, for politics, I don't really want them to do it this way. But for giant spiders, yes, I need this. So there's a bullet that says why it matters. And it will explain to you that these are giant spiders that got here from Japan. They are invasive and they will drop from the sky. Um, Next, there's a bullet that says threat level. Turns out they cannot 
poison you because their teeth are too tiny to break skin. That's great news. <laughs> then there's another bullet. Other terrifying things to know about the Joro spider. They tell you a few things about the Joro spider so you can identify it. And that's the end of the article. So this is the perfect Axios article that gives you exactly <laughs> what you need to know about terrifying giant Joro spiders that will be dropping along the East Coast out of the sky. Uh, does it give you the date so you can like carry an umbrella or wear a cap or something? I mean yeah, so it could start as early as April or May and they can live for a while and they get really big. And so they can still be around in like July, August. They can be up to like three inches long. All right. Well, Melanie, you don't have to worry about this. <laughs> right. We're all going to California now. <laughs> Although you're, you're closer to Japan than we are. I don't know why. Uh, well, thank you for that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Jen Bendry, what caught your attention? Wow, Pema's story gave me all the feels. Angry, crying, laughing. That's, <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, a story that caught my attention this week was, it made me literally laugh out loud because it's <laughs> it's just such a cluster. Um, are the trucker convoys, the, the, uh, <laughs> the truckers who are, <laughs> who have had one failure after another, as they have vowed to drive into Washington, DC to, to, in, in, you know, a fit of rage over mask mandates. But in the meantime, the, the mask mandates have been loosened. Have been lifted. Right. They don't really have an issue anymore, but they're still outraged and <laughs> want to be here. So they, they're camped out in Hagerstown, Maryland, because they've decided they're not going to come into Washington after all, because it's too much of a hassle for them. And they're just going to keep driving around the beltway. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so ridiculous. And so the story that there's, there've been a number of stories about it, but the one that I'm going to call out by title is from the daily beast. And the title is people's convoy truckers escalate DC tactics, but fail miserably again. And it's, <laughs> I'm just going to read the lead because you can find this out there in multiple, like in different outlets, but their take on this has been absolutely hilarious. This is their lead. <laughs> After taking a single lap around the beltway on Monday afternoon, the so-called People's Convoy once again failed at its goal of being a quote-unquote huge pain for the D.C. metro area. <laughs> After their short-lived Sunday effort failed on Monday morning, <laughs> the anti-vaccine mandate trucker convoys organizer pledged to escalate the group's tactics. But that plan did not come to fruition. Instead, the, the truckers in a bevy of upside-down American flag-bearing support vehicles quickly became separated for the second day in a row, <laughs> adding insult to injury both a semi-truck and a pickup truck in the convoy broke down. Um, a, a hood flipped open on a white pickup truck, stopped traffic, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I know from separate reports that there have been a number of complaints of people flipping the bird at the people's convoy, going around in circles on the beltway, a lot of DC people pushing back um, and saying how terrible they are and the truckers don't understand why they're so hated and their trucks just keep breaking down. <laughs> they they haven't even come into DC yet. They don't no. know why they're protesting, but they're just driving around in circles <laughs> around the Capitol Beltway. So that's happening this week. Um, you got to read about it if you haven't. Uh, it's been a colossal embarrassment for them, right? They just want to go back to Scranton or wherever they came from. Uh, uh, my the funniest line for me was that they said their goal was to shut down the Beltway, and somebody pointed out, well, that happens twice a day anyhow. Every <laughs> Every day, right? I mean, I mean, if anybody was keeping score at this point, it's basically like Beltway <laughs> 5, 
trucker convoy zero because it's just <laughs> one thing after another the beltway smacking them down just like the beltway smacks us all down all right melanie save the day here from uh, the west coast <laughs> your favorite story my favorite story this week uh, came from the new yorker and um by charles bethay and has the headline why did mark meadows register to vote oh. at an address <laughs> where he did not reside i love uh, that and story it was just this is just a, a fantastic example of just a great political uh, investigation where he where uh, Charles Bethay found out that Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Donald Trump in September 2020, claimed to live in a mobile home in North Carolina that is highly, highly, highly unlikely was actually his residence. Um, and in terms of you know how this made uh, me as a reader feel, I think as a journalist, I felt both kind of uh, envy and also sort of the joy you see when you just see a really excellent piece of political reporting. Um, but then also a little bit of you know frustration in that we have been covering for the last uh, year and a half uh, all of the attacks on the voting system and all of the uh, folks on the right who are railing against things like absentee voting. And then what do we have here? We have the uh, then chief of staff. Uh, who was absentee voting at an address that it certainly doesn't appear that he actually lived. And so uh, there is a little bit of um, hmm, hypocrisy uh, in this in this story, but it is also just a great example of um, when, when political reporting is done right. And so cheers to him for that. Uh, and cheers to you, uh, Melanie. I must admit, that was also my favorite story of the week. <laughs> uh, but I would just uh, add a postscript uh, rather than try to come up with something else to, to your story. One is that in North Carolina, the law is that you have to live at least 30 days in the, in a house before you can uh, vote uh, and use that house as your address, which clearly Mark Meadows did not. So it is ironic that one of the people who uh, was most outspoken about uh, the massive fraud in voting by mail is one who appears to have committed fraud himself. Uh, but I want to point out this is not the first example of uh, voting by mail fraud that we've seen in regard to the 2020 election. Uh, out in Nevada, there was a case of uh, a lot of lot of news about a woman, a dead woman, who voted by mail. Uh, it turned out that it was her husband, a Trump supporter, who actually mailed in her ballot <laughs> after she had died. Uh, and then in uh, Pennsylvania, there was another case of a dead woman having voted by mail, and it turned out that it was her son, another Trump supporter, who mailed in her ballot after <laughs> she had died. So, um, Melbourne, it looks like all the cases we've seen so far of vote-by-mail fraud have been by Trump supporters, including Trump's former chief of staff. Uh, I don't know what that tells you, but it tells me a lot. Uh, so there we are. Hey, what a great panel today. Thank you so much. Pema Levy from Mother Jones, Jennifer Bendry from the Huffington Post, and Melanie Mason from the Los Angeles Times. Great to have you with us. Come back again soon. Uh, we thank our members of our panel, and we thank all of you for listening. Remember, we'll be back on Tuesday with our uh, next week's podcast, and our guest will be Ambassador John Bolton, former National Security Advisor as well, who has now become a leading critic, critic of Donald Trump, especially about Donald Trump and his position on Ukraine and Vladimir Putin. So have a great weekend, folks. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.